Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of meeting together in a free country to study your word again this morning. More importantly than that, we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit and that Jesus didn't leave us without someone to help us understand the Bible and to write these words in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, we know that the devil is out to deceive all that he can deceive, to keep us glued to the world, to confuse us and to bring in every kind of false teaching and fanaticism that he can in order to discourage and confuse. But we thank you that you have sent us a divine interpreter to help us to understand your word and to differentiate between the false and the true and not only to understand but to apply it and to live it. I pray that as we open your word this morning that it will not be just words but that it will be a living word burning within our hearts. May your angels be present. We want to thank you so much, Lord, for sending your dear Son that this life might not be all that we have, but that we might live forever. I pray that everyone here will be developing that character and that knowledge of you every day and today so that we can receive this free gift through Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. I'd like to share again a statement that I read yesterday to begin with from Desire of Ages, page 111, where it speaks of Jesus. And it says that He who was the foundation of the ritual and economy of Israel would be looked upon as its enemy and destroyer. And I find the same is true today, that Jesus is looked upon as the enemy and destroyer of his church sometimes. And his word is looked upon as, as something that is subversive and something that will cause anarchy and disunion. Well, you know the word can be used in such a way that you can, if you want to, draw all kinds of false conclusions from it. You could read the word in such a way that you didn't believe in any kind of organization at all. You could read the word in such a way that you believe in a total hierarchy, just like the Catholic Church has. You can read the word in such a way that you can draw all kinds of conclusions in any kind of doctrine that you want to, whether it be the Sabbath, whether it be the state of the dead, or whether it be organization. But you know, I have found that if you are really sincere and earnest, and if you'll compare everything the Bible says, while it is possible to draw any conclusion you want to about the Sabbath, you can come to the truth about the Sabbath from the Bible. Is that right or wrong? It's right. You can come to the truth. Now, when I'm studying with people about the Sabbath who have never studied it before, I encourage them to study this out themselves. I don't want to mislead them. 
course, I know, at least I believe I'm not misleading them. But they don't know that, you see. They've got to study this out. Like Paul said in, in Acts 11, he said, uh, the Bereans are more noble than the Thessalonians and that they studied uh, these things, whether what I was saying was right or not. Paul didn't want people just to believe him because he was a prophet. They had to decide whether he was a true prophet first, didn't they? Or a false prophet. And then they had to, st and they had to study the things out. But when they studied them out, they received them and accepted them. And I want to be the first to say that I want to... Uh, I certainly don't want to twist the scriptures one way or another. And I realize it is 100% possible. I want to assure you, I, I certainly don't twist any scriptures intentionally. If, I, if there's something that I have overlooked or overemphasized in one area over another, I want to, don't want to do that. I'm not saying that I don't, because, and I say that just because I want you to study it for yourself. But this area of organization, sometimes we think, well, that's not for us to study. That's for them to study. If we study it, that's being critical to even study it. Well, no, that's, that's from the Middle Ages. That's what the Catholic Church taught. The organization had nothing to do with the layman. That was only for the clergy to study. Of course, it was nothing to do for the clergy either. That was only for the cardinals to study. Once you got to be the clergy, you found that the clergy weren't able to study that either. And I suppose even that holds a little bit in our Adventist church. When you become a minister, you're not supposed to study that either. That's only, that's only for, um, for the higher-ups and the ministers to study even. We had in our church, we studied this out very carefully about the pulpit. And from everything in the Bible and spirit of prophecy, we became convinced that the elders of the church were responsible for the pulpit. And the conference became very, very upset because they said that's not true. The conference is in charge of the pulpit. And, uh, you know, the pulpit is some, something that the people don't own anymore in the Adventist church. In case you haven't realized, the pulpit is owned by the pastor, but the pastor is owned by the conference. And um, so if the conference doesn't like what's being preached, they can move that pastor out and move someone else in. And no one has anything to say about it, you see. The pulpit is totally owned by the conference and often by one man. One man often owns all the pulpits in the, in the whole conference. I've sat on, I've been in the conference executive committee. I know how things work. And they work, they, things develop totally unintentionally. But over a process of time, somehow, we've come to the place where, in the name of Christianity, we try to get along. And that means that we cater to, that we, that we yield our liberties often to one man. And that's called the conference, of course. But anyway, uh, we were told, and we, the conference president came and talked to us, first to the head elder and I, and then to all the elders. And uh, we were told that, uh, we, were told, we, t we shared with him our convictions. He said, well, that's not what the church manual says. Well, the church manual 
isn't correct in this, but doesn't really define it carefully, the church manual. But he, he was interpreting the church manual his, his way. But even if the church manual had said it the way he wanted it, still the church manual is not the Bible, is it? And I don't have anything against the church manual. I'm not against it. I'm not, I, don't, I think organization's great, just as long as we don't make the Bible out of it, you know. The Bible still has to be first. Fine to have rules. Robert's rules of order are all right. And different ways of running things are all right, as long as it doesn't become the Bible. And um, so we shared with him, we said, well, listen, this is what we understand. Would you be willing to study it from us from the Bible? Maybe we're wrong. And we'd like to know. He says, no. He says, I don't have any authority to study that. He said the biblical research department would have to study that. I thought, man, here is even the conference president that can't dis- study it. Have to go clear up to the biblical research department. Well, you see, sometimes we come to the place we think if we study something like this, this is dealing with organization. Well, that, that's something that we just don't have the authority to study. But dear friends, Ellen White is very clear the church is the people. And we must study these things. And we'll never have a revival until we have a revival in organization. The Reformation involved not just a reformation of theology, but a reformation of organization. As I said yesterday, organization and theology go hand in hand. You look in Revelation and you'll find that the apostasy of the Middle Ages was not just an apostasy of theology, but the Bible lays equal stress to apostasy of organization. In fact, as you look in Daniel and Revelation about the beast, you'll find that while the beast has some wine, you'll find that it talks just as much about the persecution and the intolerance and, and how it has... Uh, Uh, all about the political structure, you'll find the Bible talks just as much about this as it does about its theology. Maybe more. And um, so it is, in fact, when you read Ellen White, if you really look in the testimonies and the different things, you'll find that while Ellen White talks about theology, she talks a lot about organization. And the Bible does too. So what I thought we had study this morning is New Testament church organization. I'd like to start with 1 Corinthians, the New Testament church. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 3. Now, we could read the beginning of almost any of Paul's books. I just picked out 1 Corinthians. We could do Romans or whatever. Uh, This is just a sample text. But starting out here, it says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who are in every place, who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to notice what Paul calls the church here in verse 2. It says, to the church of God. I want to notice two things that he 
that he mentions about the church here. First, the church was something that was in a local area in this case. The church of God at Corinth. Most of the places you'll find in the New Testament, the church is a local congregation. Once in a while, the church refers to a worldwide work. Once in a while. But most of the time, and normally, in the, in the New Testament, you'll find that the church is, is a local body of believers. And uh, who are these local body of believers? It says that they are those who are sanctified in Christ. So it is a local body of sanctified people. That is what made up a church in Paul's mind. And that's usually what he refers to as a church. Now, in Acts of the Apostles, page 11, Alan White says something, somewhat the same thing. Um, she says, The church is God's fortress, His city of refuge, which He holds in a revolted world. From the beginning, faithful souls have constituted the church on earth. Now, Paul correlates the church with those who are sanctified. Here, Ellen White says, The church are those who are faithful. And she says, This has been the church from when? From the very beginning. Has God had a church way back there before the flood? Did he have a church? Sure. Has he always had a church? He's always had a church. And his church from the very beginning were the faithful souls who have constituted the church on earth. In every age the Lord has had his watchmen who have borne a faithful testimony to the generation in which they lived. God brought these witnesses into covenant relation with himself, uniting the church on earth with the church in heaven. Hey, isn't that interesting? Is there a church in heaven? There's a church in heaven. And there's a church on earth. He has sent forth his angels to minister to his church. And the gates of hell have not been able to prevail against his people. Through centuries of persecution, conflict, and darkness, God has sustained his church. Not one cloud has fallen upon it that he is not prepared for. Enfeebled and effective as it may appear, the church is the one object upon which God bestows in a special sense His supreme regard. Now you know this word defective and, and enfeebled as it may appear is often used to mean the church is, is the people and the organization however bad it may be, but that's not the sense she's using it in. She says the church are the faithful people. Now often... Even in Jesus' disciples, they were the faithful souls. They were defective. They were learning, and they didn't have a lot of education, didn't have a lot of abilities, and they were sometimes presumptuous, um, uh, a little bit impetuous. Peter was, you know, and others. But they were his church. They were the church. In Jesus' day, where, what was the church in Jesus' day? Why, it was Jesus and the apostles and those who believed in Jesus. Do you think Caiaphas was a part of the true church? He's, certainly his membership was there, wasn't it? But uh, the true church was Jesus and the apostles and those who believed in him. And it was small and, and appeared feeble. Feeble means weak. Certainly they appeared to be very weak. But uh, however weak they may have appeared, it was the object of God's supreme care. It was the object, like the apple of his eye, he was watching over and taking care of, of his humble church. 
And so in the New Testament, as Paul says, the church was primarily a local body of believers, uh, of sanctified people, of people who believed. In a special sense, they were... Now, while in one sense I'm sure that Paul would admit that everyone who attended may have been the church, but in a special sense, it was the special people who were truly converted. Those who are registered in heaven. Look with me over here at Hebrews 12, verse 22 and 23. Hebrews 12, verses 22 and 23. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Now, Paul says, this is the church that's registered there. I, I want you to know that if you're truly a member of God's church, your name is registered on the church rolls of heaven. And the real, yes, was that, was that the right quote? Hebrews 12, verses 22 and 23. I'm reading from the New King James. Verse 23 says, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Now, <clears throat> this is something very interesting. Just want to think about it for a minute. If your name is registered in heaven, how can you how can that name be taken off of the registry? Do you suppose that if I get together with some other church members and drum uh, and come up with some false charge against you and I get your name off here while you're really living up to and following the Lord? Do you suppose that God says, well, they took his name off down there. I guess I have to take his name off up here. Do you think that happens? Yes. Now, is, is there a church that believes that that happens? Yes. yes, there is, isn't there? There's a church that believes that once you're excommunicated here, you're excommunicated up there. You know, when Jesus gave, when Jesus uh, entrusted uh, the keys of the kingdom to the church, yes? Okay, if your name isn't registered on earth, can it be registered in heaven? Uh this, let me share, when, when the Bible says, gives the keys to, in Matthew 16, he says, I'll give you the keys, speaking to the disciples, of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you remember that text in Matthew 16? The real Greek word there means whatever you bind on earth will already have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will already have been loosed in heaven. Now, and so the church on earth is to follow the church in heaven. The church in heaven doesn't follow the church on earth. We follow the church in heaven. When someone accepts Jesus, their name is registered in heaven. When it becomes registered in heaven, the church on earth is supposed to follow suit and say, well, it's registered there. We should register it here too. And, but the church in heaven doesn't follow us. We're supposed to follow them. That's where the headquarters is, you see. 
And um, the real conference office and the real headquarters is up there. That's what Paul says. That's where the headquarters is, is up there. You know, Ellen White makes it very clear that when Paul was ordained as a missionary, she says he had already been ordained by God. The church was just recognizing the call that God had already given him. And we've always said that with elders. And that is that elders have to be called by God. It's up to the church to recognize the call, not to do the calling, but to recognize the call, you see. So we have always recognized that in, in, in a certain sense. Now you see, when someone accepts Jesus with all their heart and they're baptized, they're registered in heaven. And then the church on earth is to recognize that too. When someone rejects the Lord, their name is taken off of the books in heaven. And then the church is supposed to take their name off too. You see, the church is supposed to be so close to the Lord that the church follows everything that they do in heaven. Just as Jesus prayed in the Lord's will, a prayer, he says, May thy will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. You see. And so God's will is done in heaven. And Jesus prayed that that will might be done on earth. Now, he didn't say it always well, but that was his prayer. And that should be our prayer too. Our prayer should be that, Lord, help us to do on earth what you've done in heaven. And help your will to be done here like it's done there. You see, it is not just up to our decision whether someone should become a church member or be disfellowshipped. The decision is already made. The church can only recognize or not recognize what heaven has already done. As we meet together in prayer and in church organization, our prayer should not, is not to, to make the decisions. Our prayer is to try to figure out what decisions have already been made and say, Lord, help us to know what, uh, uh, what your will is here, what you've already done in heaven. Now, I want you to know, and I'd like you to have talk about security. I'd like you to know that once your name is registered in heaven, there is no man on earth that can touch that name. They can erase it here, but that doesn't mean a thing. Don't let anyone scare you with that. Whether the church recognizes or doesn't recognize, your name is not affected. Your name is only affected by your character. But I want to tell you something else. If you apostatize and you go out and start living in some open sin and you reject Jesus, it doesn't matter whether you're an elder of the church or a minister or a conference president or anything else. It doesn't matter if your name is here and if you're father and mother's name was on the books and your grandfather and grandmother's name was on the books. It doesn't matter. You're not a church member anymore. You may think you are, but you just don't realize. Everyone else may think you are. But where our names are really registered is where? In heaven. Now, God wants us to have a registry here on earth. He wants us to be organized. But we are not to be self-organized. We are to reflect the organization that God has in heaven. God is to be the head of the church. Now I tell you, I want to be registered here, but where I want to be registered even more than here is in heaven. Isn't that true? That's my real concern, is in heaven. And um, because that's, that's where the real church headquarters, headquarters are. And so the real church of God 
are those people who are sanctified and who are following the Lord, who are faithful souls. That is the real church. Now, what God wants is for the organization on earth to, re to be the real church. I don't mean, don't anyone twist what I'm saying and say some of the Adventist church isn't. It's not what I'm saying at all. I'm talking about the local congregation. What God wants is for the local congregation in um, Leicester or in, in wherever it happens to be, uh, He wants that local congregation to be the real church of that city. And that means that the local congregation is composed of the sanctified people who are registered in heaven. Now, it doesn't have to be. The church can allow all kinds of people to remain on the church books who aren't members of the church in heaven. And then the church begins to, to be kind of a mixture, you know, of real church members and not real church members. On the other hand, the church could exclude people who are registered in the church of heaven. And that's bad too. Now, you know, over in Hungary, there's been a whole group of people excluded. But I want to tell you, there's no union office or conference office or even local church office that has the authority to disfellowship anyone on their own. The only authority we have to disfellowship someone is according to Bible principles. We can't set up our own rules. And we can't decide that somebody has the wrong color of hair, therefore they can't be a member of this church. We can't decide that someone doesn't agree with some pet theory of ours, even though it's not in the Bible, therefore they can't be a member of this church. We may decide, and we may even get the votes not to let them be a member, but that just means that, that we have excluded part of God's true church. That means the true church includes more than just what's in our church. You see what I mean? Yes. Let me read from Upward Look. If... Uh, Page 315, what Ellen White says is the church. God has a church. It is not the great cathedral, neither is it the national establishment, neither is it the various denominations. Now I say this carefully. Of course, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is, one of the is a denomination. Ellen White says the various denominations are not the church. Now, I believe the Seventh-day Adventist Church is God's church. But in a special sense, it's the local believers who are the church. Each local congregation of believers is the church in that area, you see. But anyway, what is she talking about here? She goes on. It is the people who love God and keep His commandments. Who does she say the church is? It's people. The church is not organization, dear friends. It's people. Organization is never, ever the church. The people are to be organized. But that's not the church, you see. It's like a family. A family may have a house, but the house isn't the family. I can move to a different house and I still have the same family, don't I? We have lived in lots of houses. And we still have the same family. It's not a different family. And so it is with organization. The organization is not the church, nor ever can be. The people are the church, and the people are to be organized. But the organization isn't the church. Do you see the difference? Yes. Ellen White had a, you know, Kellogg had a problem. 
not so much the organization, but he came to think that the medical work was a church. And why he says, no, it's the right arm, but it's not the body. It's the right arm. There's a difference between being the right arm and the body. Amen. A body can live without the arm. It's kind of handicapped, but it can live. And God can even replace the arm. Now, we haven't learned to replace arms yet. We've replaced hearts and other things. But God can replace an arm if he has to. The arm is different than the body. She says the body is the people. That's the church. And so she says it is the people who love God and keep his commandments. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Where Christ is, even among the humble few, this is Christ's church. And I want to go one step farther here. Just as the local church cannot decide who are members and who are not members, all they can do is recognize who have been registered up there and recognize who have been disfellowshipped up there, and we are to follow suit. But God doesn't do what we do. We are to do what He does. And the church either remains pure or it doesn't remain pure. Courts of heaven aren't changed. We either reflect them or we don't reflect them. So we either pure or we become lukewarm. But just as that is true in the case of local members, it's true in the case of local churches. There is no man on earth that can decide that somebody can be a church and not be a church. You know, we have these little votes or these times when someone is organized into a church, supposedly. And when a conference decides, well, this, this is a company here or this is a church here, they come to a certain place and they're a church there's no one on earth that can make that decision. There's no council, hierarchy, or, or person, or committee, or anything else that can decide on earth when someone is a church. All they can do is recognize the church. You see, when Paul went out to start churches, you can't find any place in the New Testament where these churches were made churches by some committee in Jerusalem. Never. When there was a local group of believers that met together and fellowship together, and were sanctified, they were a church. And it was up to the congregation, to the headquarters in Jerusalem, to recognize these churches, not to make them churches. Now there can come times when a local group of believers totally apostatize, and where headquarters may have to say, these, this group is not a church anymore, but they can't make them not a church. God in heaven has to make them not a church, and then they have to recognize the fact based upon biblical principles. If you have a local congregation of believers who are down here and saying, listen, we're going to start meeting on Sunday, you know, and this one's going to be our worship day, the conference has every right. Well, they have the duty and the obligation. It's not their, they don't even have a choice in it. God has already decided they're not, they're not my church anymore. And the conference has to say, you know, these people aren't a church anymore. And so they have to recognize the fact. And no longer would they be a church. But I want to tell you, there is no committee or group on earth that can decide that this can be a church or they can be a church. They can't be a church and they can't be a church. The church is, what is it? Wherever Christ is, even among the humble few, this is Christ's church. For the presence of the High and Holy One who inhabiteth eternity can alone constitute a church. Now, I have a real, I don't know, 
we maybe it's time to look at everything the Bible says on these things. There were times when Jesus says, you know, we can't look at everything now. We're just not ready for it. I, I don't want to go beyond what we're ready to look at. But, you know, could it be that there are congregations who are, quote, churches that God doesn't recognize as a church? Now, I'm not here to judge. I'm not even talking about that. What I am saying, in each one of our churches, we need to be very concerned that we are truly a church and not just call ourselves a church. Could it be that there are little groups of people meeting that are a church that aren't recognized on earth as being a church? And could it be there are groups that are meeting that are recognized as churches that aren't churches? What does this say? Number one, where Christ is among the humble few, this is Christ's church. It is. Number two, wherever he is not, there he doesn't have a church. If you have a local group of believers where apostasy is taking control and where Christ is not meeting, is, isn't meeting among them, is it a church or is it not a church? It's not a church, is it? Where two or three are present, who love and obey the commandments of God, Jesus there presides. Let it be in the desolate place of the earth, in the wilderness, in the city, enclosed in prison walls. The glory of God has penetrated the prison walls, flooding with glorious beams of heavenly light the darkest dungeon. His saints may suffer, but their sufferings well like the apostles of old spread their faith and win souls to Christ and glorify His name. The bitterest opposition expressed by those who hate God's great moral standard of righteousness shall not and will not shake the steadfast soul who trusts in Him. You know, if you're in prison and you convert a soul or two and there you have two or three people that are meeting in prison, worshiping God, that's God's church right there in prison. Isn't that wonderful? And God, although... Although conference personnel may not be able to come in and organize a church, may not want to come in and organize a church, God sends His angel down there and He organizes that into a church. And there Jesus presides. Well, let's look at the church in the New Testament. We've just got an introduction here. And it looks like I better, we better move on or we won't go beyond the introduction. <clears throat> but let's go to Acts 9, verse 31. Let's peruse the books of, book of Acts here a little bit. It says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, this is verse 31 of Acts 9, had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Now here he's talking about all the churches, the local bodies of believers. And it says, as they walked in the fear of the Lord, they were multiplied. Now, dear friend, that's God's purpose for His church, is that they multiply. Every church is to start another church. We're all here like every soul is to win another soul. Every church is to win another church, is to start another church. We're here not to maintain churches, dear friends. We're here to start new churches. And when the Spirit of the Lord takes control... We're going to see churches springing up everywhere. And it's not going to go through a long red tape process of being made a church. Churches are going to raise up everywhere. I just listened to a quote that someone read. And I can't tell you where it was from. I have to look it up because I 
haven't had the chance yet so this is just second generation you're hearing it now but my brother was reading this quotation and uh, Ellen White says that uh, when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit goes forth the memorials to his name will spring up in every village and hamlet they're going to spring up here there and everywhere are there cities here in England that don't have a church yet don't have a memorial yet Someday when the Holy Spirit is poured out, there's going to be churches springing up and all. They not, may not be big. They may be five or six members. I don't know. But there's going to be a church there. Churches. And they're going to spring up here, there, and everywhere. They're going to multiply as they did in the New Testament times. Turn with me over to Acts 14, verses 21 to 23. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Verse 22, now I am. Exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. I want to notice two things about the church here. One is, not only is it important that not only is it Christians who enter the kingdom of God through trouble, but churches enter the kingdom of God through tribulation. And churches grow through tribulation. Churches are perfected and, and edified. Um, edified may be the wrong word, but they, God uses persecution and trial in order to strengthen and perfect the church. Now, I wish today that we had churches that were willing to go through a little persecution for Jesus' sake. We have precious few. I wish we had churches that were willing to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ and say, we are faithful, loyal Seventh-day Adventists. And as faithful, loyal servants of the Lord, we are interested in every soul of this congregation and we want to do everything that God wants us to do in this church, whether it's popular with the conference or not popular with the conference. And we are willing to accept persecution in order to be servants of the Lord. In this church, we believe that the elders are in charge of the pulpit. And if the preacher the conference sends is not feeding the flock, we're going to fill the church pulpit with local elders and the preacher won't be able to preach. Does God give the local church that authority? Let's look and see. I want you to notice here what, what, um, what it was that Paul appointed in every church. What did he appoint in every church? He appointed elders. And where were the elders from? Did he send them from Jerusalem? There were missionaries sent from Jerusalem. But where were these elders appointed from? Appointed from the churches, from the congregation. Now, what were these elders appointed for? Let's look over here in Acts 20. First, in verse 17, it says, And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Now, what did he call from the church? Did he call the head elder? Did he call the conference elder? What did he call? The elders. Is that singular or plural? Plural. He called the elders plural. 
There's an S on the end of it. And what does he say to these elders, plural, from the local church? These are the people that were called from the local congregation and set apart to be elders of the church. What does he say to them down in verse 28? He says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you the overseers. Who are made the overseers of the flock, dear friends? The elders of the church are made overseers of the flock. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among your own selves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Now it says here that from themselves, men will draw, and the elders were to protect the church from these wolves. Now suppose a wolf is appointed in the church or comes from Jerusalem. Are the elders to protect the flock from them too? Oh no, they mustn't do that. That would be insubordination. Well, let's look and see who it is that they are supposed to protect the flock from. Turn with me over here to Galatians 2. Now I want to read you a most startling, a most startling passage in the Bible. Galatians 2, verses 11 and on. It says, But when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Now I want you to get the setting here. Here it was, was someone from the Jerusalem church, but not just someone, it was Peter himself. He'd been one of Jesus' twelve disciples. He was among the chief of the, of the headquarters church. And here was a church out here in Galatia. A church had been raised up among the, among the heathen of Galatia. This was a Gentile church that had been raised up. And they were raised up as babes in the Lord. But among them, the, they had had some, some had developed into being elders. But you know, here they were, and here comes somebody from the headquarters church. I mean, somebody that walked and talked with Jesus. One of the three highest disciples, and one from, uh, of, the, of the most venerated of the disciples. He was not a pope, but nevertheless, he was one of the pillars of the church. And of the headquarters church. And he came down. And Paul had to withstand him. But you know, he was very upset with the church. You know why? Because he had to do it. That was the elder's place. God had appointed elders to protect the church from people like Peter on this occasion. So what does he say in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1? Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You know who it was? It was Peter. Now, Peter was a servant of the Lord, but in this case, he, he, uh, he apostatized a little bit. He went off a little bit. And the church followed, and they were not supposed to follow. The elders should have gotten up and saying, this is not right, and we won't go along with it. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Was, was Paul happy that the church had gone along with Peter? Well, Peter may have made some mistakes, but at least the church kept peace. At least the church 
You know, at least they showed reverence and respect. At least, at least they understand, understood proper authority. At least they recognized the anointed of the Lord when he came down. Is that what Paul says? Oh, no. He says, foolish Galatians. You became disobedient to God because you obeyed Peter. Who, why have you done this? In fact, he goes on to say some stronger things than that. Chapter 5, verse 1. He says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty with which Christ has made us free. Now, true enough, Paul here is talking also about the liberty of liberty from the ceremonial law. But he was talking more than just liberty from the ceremonial law. In context, if you read all of Galatians, you'll find that he is also talking about liberty to stand for truth even when the, even when the representatives from Jerusalem come down and try to impose some other teaching upon them. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty with which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. I want to tell you, dear friends, our churches are in bondage today. They're in bondage to the conference office. And they have apostatized. Whatever preacher comes down, if they happen to have a good preacher, they believe the truth. If they happen to have an apostate preacher, they believe error. Whatever that comes down, they're like sheep. They do whatever they are told. Whatever, whatever teaching comes down is... That's what the church becomes. I'll tell you, I've seen church after church. If you have an active pastor, the church grows. If you have a sleepy pastor, the church dies. It all depends upon one man, whoever is sent down there. Everything depends upon one man. Somehow we have become in bondage to people. Ellen White says the pastor is to teach people not to look to him, but to look to God. And eight testimonies. What time is it? I don't know where all the books are. They're all out everywhere. <laughs> Ellen White says on up page about 24, I believe it is. Let's see, is this seven testimonies or eight testimonies? It's one or the other. It's, I get these two references ma- mixed up sometimes. It's about the same in the two books. But she says how the local church members are to send the ministers out and tell them, listen, we'll run the church. You go out and start some new churches. We'll take care of the church. I want to tell you today, churches would hardly, they, churches wouldn't survive without a pastor. They become totally dependent upon them. You know, I'm told over in China that uh, before the communist takeover in China in 1947. You know, China was our greatest mission field for many, many years. We, we sent missionaries and a lot of money over there. And we built up hospitals and mission sta- stations and services. But a lot of the places were too far away for the missionaries to get to. And so... Uh, they had to organize the people locally, these poor, deprived people, you know, up by Mongolia and other places where they had to only saw a missionary once a year or so. After the communist takeover, I understand that these places that didn't have mission, could only saw missionaries seldom were small churches struggling. 
And the churches where the missionaries were by the conference church, of course, they had big churches with nice buildings with money from overseas. But after the communist takeover, I understand these big churches, they all went. And the little churches just kept right on without any, any trouble at all. They grew and grew and grew. Before the takeover, you looked like there was big churches here and small churches here. But you know, after the takeover, it was just reversed. Then we saw where the churches really were. The one churches were t- clear wiped out. They had never learned to stand on their own two feet or to run anything on their own. When the missionaries left, the churches collapsed. These churches up here that were small and struggling, they continued on. They didn't know any difference. They hadn't seen a missionary for a year anyway. They just kept right on the way they had been going. And the Lord blessed, and they grew all during these years. They have continued to witness and continued to grow. Well, you know, I think my time went, and I've only gotten through one page of four, one quarter of what I wanted to cover. But anyway, I want to wrap up with a few things here. I want to notice who it is that is the head of the church. Turn with me over to uh, Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. It says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the head of the church. Who is it that is to organize a church and to call people into service? We find over here in Acts 12, a text that Ellen White says we could read every day with profit, 1 Corinthians 11 and 12. And here she says in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, in verse 11, Paul says, Nevertheless, He says, but one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as who wills, as he wills. Verse 28, it says, and God has appointed these in the church. Who has appointed them there? The Lord. You know, when Isaiah was called to be a prophet, people questioned his prophecy, but he was called. When John was called to preach, they questioned, they said, by what authority do you preach? When Jesus came along, they questioned, they said, by what authority do you preach? I want to tell you by what authority that Paul preached and Peter preached and Jesus preached and John the Baptist preached. They preached by the authority of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had called them. And I want to tell you today and this day, God is going to call again people. He's going to call people to preach and people to serve. Now I want you to notice this though. And I want want you to, to be very careful on one thing. There are the unbalanced people that can get a hold of texts like this and say, well, I want to preach and I don't need anyone to tell me whether I can preach or not preach. No one can tell me. I can do my own thing. There's nothing in this text about anyone doing his own thing. We are to be called and appointed by God. I want to tell you, when God calls and appoints a person, I don't, maybe I'm, I don't want to overstate this, Maybe I should say generally. I don't want to say always, but almost always. He calls somebody, someplace, to recognize that call besides the person himself. 
Were there those who recognized Jesus' call? How about John the Baptist? Did he recognize it? Did he introduce him to the nation? The Sanhedrin didn't, true enough. We may not always be recognized by the Sanhedrin. Now, I suppose we could always find somebody that would recognize us no matter who we are. I mean, Jim Jones could do that. Anybody can do that. But I mean, if we're really meeting together in sincere prayer, let's suppose somebody comes up and says, you know, I feel that God has called me to to preach. I really feel a burning in my bones. I want to go out and win souls. Well, of course, we should all go out and win souls. But I feel like I should be going out and preaching and holding meetings and things. Well, has God called you to do this? Or have have you just uh, seen some preachers up there and thought it might be nice to stand up there with clean fingernails and preaching, you know, the Word of God? And and is it nice to stand up? You know, is it just some uh, pride that you don't know about yet? Is that what it is? Well, maybe it is. I don't know. I want to know what God wants me to do. Would you be willing to come over and pray with me? And so you meet together. Now, there's where a church board is for, by the way, or a group in the church or prayer meeting in the church. Let's get together and pray. Here is a brother who feels that he's called, but he wants to be sure. He doesn't want to be led away of his own, of his own feelings. And so the church kneels down. They pray, Lord, have you called this man to preach? Have you called this woman to go out and preach? God does call women to preach sometimes. Ellen White went and preached, didn't she? Have you called this person to do this? And so you kneel there and you pray as a group. Do you think God will hear those prayers? Listen, that's what the appointing is all about. That's what the church is all about. The church is here to recognize God's call. It's not up for me to just go and say, well, I don't need anyone to tell me what to do. I'll do my own thing. No, not at all. There is a place for organization. God's work has always been organized. But it's not up for the church to sit down and say, well, let's see, let's organize this church. No. It's up to the church to say, God is going to organize this church. Let's find out what His plans are. Somebody comes up and says, you know, I feel that God has called me. Now, they may not always feel. Maybe the Lord will impress the nominating committee. You know, in our nominating committee, last one I was uh, with, we spent an hour and a half before every nominating committee in Bible study and prayer asking God to show us who He was wanting to fulfill these different places. Saying, Lord, we don't know. We don't want to just put in somebody because they have money. We don't want to put in somebody because it might make trouble if we don't. We don't want to put in somebody just because they've been there for 10 years. We don't want to put in somebody because that's what they want to do and they're going to be an elder or they're going to cause, we know they're going to cause the trouble, so we're just going to close our eyes and put them in and go on and have a smooth run in church. We don't want to do those things. Lord, show us whom you have ordained for the different positions of this church. And then after we... We try to figure out the best we can whom the Lord has ordained. Then we, try, we pray with the person. Try to help them see that they are called of the Lord, not by man. And we don't come with any, with any um, pressure tactics. We meet with the person say, you know, we prayed and this is whom the best that we can decide. But we want you to pray and see if you feel the Lord has called you too. Maybe we didn't work close enough to the Lord. The Lord could really show us, you see. And well, I'm not going to come up and say to someone, listen, we need somebody here. I can't find, I'm tired of the nominating committee, so because of that, 
The Lord called you, and you better do it. If you don't do it, you know, you're lost. Just because I don't want to go back to another nominating committee. No, I want the person to feel that he's called to, or she's called to, you see? And then to, uh, and if they're not, then we go back to the Lord and say, Lord, they don't feel they're called. Who else do you have? Or what else, you know, who, who is it that you have? Did we come up with the wrong person here? I want to tell you, friends, more and more we need to realize that God has made us stewards, but He has not made us the king. He has not made us the rulers of the church. He has made us stewards of the church. We must come humbly before Him and say, Lord, this is Your precious heritage. Help us to fulfill our God-given duty that You've given to us. You know, dear friends, this is the day and age of all the day and ages. Right before Jesus comes, all the other rest of church history is all gone. It's past. This is what's here today, and it's all that God has is you and I. And these people that are alive today, that's all He has. And He's waiting on you and me. He's waiting on the people that think that they make up His church today, those who are united together. He's waiting on us. We're not waiting on Him. He's waiting on just one thing. He's waiting to become the head of His church again the head of each local congregation. He's wanting to fill it and to purify it. He stands at the door and knocks, saying, I want to come in. I want to be your shepherd. I want to be your leader. Can I come in? And we say, well, Lord, how much trouble is it going to cost us if you come in? You know, back in Jerusalem, when you came to the church, it caused a lot of trouble. The priests got mad. The Pharisees got upset. You chased them out. You cleanse a church, but it caused a lot of trouble. People were lost jobs and everything else. You can do that again? How much trouble is it going to cost if you come into my church? Well, the Lord says, I can't negotiate that. I'm just asking if I can come in unconditionally, whether I can come in. Whatever happens, happens. Can I come in? Well, I don't know, Lord. That's not too good a planning. We have to have more far... We have to have better laid plans than that. We have to have some... We, we'll have to take this to the committee and see if we can let this. You know, we've invested a lot of money in this church and we have to protect it. And you might come in and upset the apple cart. We might get some people upset. I want to tell you, dear friends, it's time. It's time that we let Jesus in to run his church. Great Controversy, pages 45 and 46, it says, As long as persecution continued, the church remained comparatively pure. But as it ceased, converts were added who were less sincere and devoted, and the way was open for Satan to obtain a foothold, a foothold in the church. It required a desperate struggle for those who would be faithful to stand firm against the deceptions and abominations introduced into the church. They dared not tolerate errors fatal to their own souls and set an example which would imperil the faith of their children. To secure peace and unity, they were ready to make any concession consistent with fidelity to God. But they felt that even peace would be too dearly purchased at the sacrifice of principles. If unity could be secured only at the compromise of truth and righteousness, then let there be difference and even war 
Now, if it stopped there, that would be one thing. I want to tell you, listen to the next sentence. Well, would it be for the church? Who is the church? It's the people. Is that us? Hopefully that's us, isn't it? That's your local congregation. Your local congregation. All of our local congregations. I hope that we can work so that our local congregations reflect exactly what the books in heaven say. But these are the local sanctified people. Well, would it be for the church if the principles that actuated those steadfast souls were revived in the hearts of God's professed people? Ellen White is saying, oh, if the Seventh-day Adventist church the local Seventh-day Adventist congregations could have the same faith that actuated these people back then that would do anything except sacrifice principles for peace. But when it came to principles, let there be war if it meant to, to, to compromise in any way. Listen, dear, dear friends, there's something a lot worse People think unity is the most important thing. Unity is not the most important thing. Amen. Truth is the most important thing. Amen. War is far better than peace when it comes to sacrificing principle. The worst thing that can, a church can have is to have peace and unity built upon apostasy. That's the worst thing a church can have. It's called Laodicea. And Jesus says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Don't glory in, in having a peaceful church unless that peaceful church is filled with the Holy Spirit. And if it is, you're going to have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and be doing some things like happened at Pentecost. Be deathly afraid if you're going on and everything is... What did Jesus say? He says, Beware when all men speak well of you, for so they did the false prophets who were before you. Beware! Listen, let a local church beware if they're complimented. And if everything is rolling along peacefully and smoothly and there are no troubles in the church, beware! Unless that church is, is filled with the Holy Spirit and they're out winning new churches and starting new churches and baptizing people. Listen, if you're going on in peace and nothing's happening, that church is in the depths of a death-like apostasy. Amen. Dear friends, it is time to hear not the wedding bells, not the peace and all the rest. It's time to hear the war drums. We don't want war. But dear friends, we want truth even if it means war. That's what we want. Amen. We don't want to beat the drums. But I want to tell you, dear friends, if you're going to live for truth, you're going to hear the drums being beat someplace. Amen. Well... Wrap up here. What did I what did I not cover that I wanted to cover? I suppose a lot of things, but there's coming a day. There's coming a day when the church is going to be purified. We're not waiting for God. He's waiting for us. Sometimes we think, well, someday God is going to come down and purify the church. He's going to send His angels down to do it. 
Yes, the angels are going to assist in the work and they're going to do it. But they're going to do it when we decide that we're ready. The day I say that it is time to go home, not to cause trouble, far be it. God loves the peacemakers. Jesus was a peacemaker, but he never had peace. God loves the peacemaker. It's time for us to go home and to love everyone. To love our brethren and sisters in the church, to love the pastor and the elder and the Sabbath school teacher and the conference president, to love everyone, to pray for them. But to love them so much that in love and in humbleness, not in pride and arrogance, there's a total difference, in humbleness and in quietness, but with firmness and conviction to share the nominating committee time at the board time in our Sabbath schools, to share the convictions that it is time for a revival and a reformation and that we must not go on just in, just in the ways that we have been going on. It's time that we have a pure eldership. It's time that the church becomes responsible for the pulpit, responsible for the souls in the church, responsible for the church, responsible for the soul winning responsible as shepherds and guardians of the flock. It's time that as elders in our elders meetings we speak up to the... If we have a pastor who believes in new theology and shares the pastor that we need to study these things out. We just don't agree that what he's saying is from the Bible. If we're wrong, we want to know. We need to approach these things humbly, but we need to study them. And dear friend, let's get down on our knees with the pastors and see... Realize these pastors are souls for whom Jesus died. See if we can convert every one of them if they're not converted. But dear friends, after we've studied, we need to make it clear that these things can't be preached from the pulpit anymore. Not in our church. Because God has made us, God has, has made us guardians of this church. And you can go talk to the conference president. We love you. And we want you to be a part of our family, but we can't allow you to preach from the pulpit anymore. You think that might cause a little war? Whatever it might cause, dear friends, it's time that we realize souls are at stake. There's going to be souls in heaven a thousand years from now, a million years from now, who will be there or not be there because of what we do here. I say, dear friend, it's time for Jesus to come. It's time for us to do the things that God has called us to do so that He can come. I want to tell you, in ages past, people were willing to stand for their faith. If it meant to be burned at the stake or to be thrown in a dungeon, they were willing to stand for the faith. It's time we have the faith of the Christian martyr. Amen. Time we have the faith of our Protestant forefathers who began this great work. We're, we, we are the legacy of the work they did. It's time for us to pick up the torch and march on in humbleness and love. But with firmness and fidelity, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we might study the New Testament church until we in our local churches reflect the way you established them to be in the beginning so that we can have that same power that caused them to multiply, so that we can have the same power as happened at Pentecost. We know it has to happen before you can come again. 
We don't want to go on in this earth another hundred years. There's been too much heartache and sorrow in the last hundred years. We want to see the work finished so that you can come. I pray that you'll help every one of us here to have the faith of the Christian hero and the Christian martyr. We not, might not go presumptuously. We might learn to be peacemakers, but that we might be firm and true and humble and loyal for you. And that we might take our guardianship faithfully that you have given to us. Lord, I pray for every local church represented here. I pray for every soul that is a member of each one of these local churches. May these churches become the burden of our heart. And may we be willing to be scoffed at or laughed at or, or whatever else to be in humbleness to present our convictions in the church board and the church business meetings and to the pastor and to the elders and to one another. And may we share these convictions with a lot of prayer so that you can begin to use us to create a revival and reformation so that you can come again soon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.